0: Realm presents Tales Beyond Time, episode
2: 33. Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome back. This is Tales Beyond Time, presented by Realm, and I'm Marco Palmieri, here to guide you the rest of the way on the eerie adventure we started last week. I told you a bit about the author, Kelly Robson, in our previous episode, so I won't make you wait any longer to learn the fate of Helen, Peter, Mimi, and the other residents of Schloss Merese. It's time we returned to A Human Stain, Part 2.
3: Birchen left at the first light of dawn. Helen's pounding headache woke her just in time to spot him from her bedroom window, rowing across the lake in the skiff pocking the water's surface with each frantic pitch of the oars. She'd never seen him move so quickly, put so much of his bulky muscle to work. It was as though he were escaping something. Anxiety wormed through her breast. If she called out to him, he'd turn around and row back. But the window latch was stuck, the claw cemented into the catch with years of dust and grit. She struggled with it for a minute and then gave up. Her head throbbed. Her mouth was coated in grit, and her eyes felt as though they'd been filled with sand. She crawled back to bed and shoved her head under her pillow. When she finally ventured up to the nursery in the afternoon, Mimi was sitting in the window seat, needle and thread idle in her lap. The boy was nowhere to be seen. Helen joined Mimi in the window seat. How long have you been caring for Peter, Mimi? The girl shrugged. I suppose when you first came here, you ransacked the house every time he hid from you. We oui, said Mimi. But you're tired of it. He's older now, he should know better. Mimi hung her head. One lone tear streaked over the rose of her cheek and dropped to her collar, staining the cotton dark. Helen longed to wipe her knuckle along that soft cheek, lift the dregs of the tear to her lips as if it were nectar. But no. That might be fine in a sodden Pigal Bistro, but not here. She'd only frighten the girl. She rested her palm on Mimi's knee, just the lightest touch. Stay here. I'll get him. Helen found Peter sitting on the edge of the terrace, legs extended, trying to reach his toes into the water. He leaned back, balancing on his arms, and squirmed closer to the edge. Helen's heart hammered. She bit the inside of her cheek to keep herself from calling out. A sudden noise might startle him. She crept closer, poised to run and grab him if he fell. When the boy turned his head toward her, she kept her voice low and calm. Come here, Peter. He ignored her. She slowly edged closer. Come away from there, please. When he was within reach, she snatched him up, hauled him to the front of the house and set him down on the doorstep. She gripped his arms firmly and bent to look him in the eye. Peter, you can't keep running off. Do you understand? It's dangerous. What if you'd fallen into the lake? Peter, miss. The boy scuffed his foot. The light bouncing off the lake seemed to leech the colour from his skin. Yes, Miss York. That's your first English lesson. Repeat after me. Yes, Miss York. Yes, Miss York, he said. Good, she said. He raised his hand to her cheek. He gave her one brief caress, and then snaked two of his fingers into her mouth. Helen reeled backward, her arms pinwheeled. She grabbed for the door handle but missed. When she fell, she raked her shin along the doorstep's edge. Peter stood over her and watched as she keened in pain, clutching her leg and rocking on the ground like a turtle trapped on its back. She rolled to her side and wadded her skirt around her leg to sop up the blood. When she could stand, she grabbed his hand and yanked him upstairs, lurching with every step and smearing blood in a trail up the steps. Mimi met her on the upper landing. Helen shoved the boy into her arms, dropped to the floor and raked up her skirts. Blood poured down her leg and into her shoe. Her shin was skinned back, flesh pursed around gleaming bone. She fell back on one elbow, vision swimming. Mimi guided her to a chair and lifted her skirts. Helen flinched, but Mimi's touch was soft, her movements quick and gentle. She ran out of the room for a moment, then returned with rags and a jug of water. As Mimi cleaned her wound, Peter cowered in the window seat. Helen kept a close eye on him. He was crying again, silently, his mouth forming one word over and over again. Mama. Mimi put the final tuck into the bandage, then squeezed Helen's knee and looked up, her brown eyes huge. I see. Helen breathed. Mimi smiled. Lips peeled back over gaping gums. Wire wormed through pinholes in her back teeth. Helen recoiled. She grabbed the edge of the table and hauled herself to her feet. She stumped over to the window seat, grabbed Peter's shoulders and shook him hard. That's enough, she yelled. No more games. No running off on your own. Understand? The boy sobbed. She lowered her voice, trying to reach a source of calm deep within her. Don't be afraid, Peter. I'm not angry anymore. What do you say? Yes, Miss York. Very good. I understand you miss your mother and father. It hasn't been very long since they died, but it will get easier with time. Bitter miss, the boy said. Mama and Papa died many years ago. The cook and steward blocked her questions. In between their one-word answers, they commented to each other in an impregnable Bavarian dialect, gossiping about her, no doubt, as if she weren't even there. And why shouldn't they? She was acting like a madwoman, limping around the kitchen, waving her arms and yelling at them in every language she knew. Helen took two deep breaths and tried again. A few days ago in Paris, Herr Lambrecht told me his brother had just passed away. He had to travel to Mercy and take responsibility for his nephew, the house and the family finances. Is that true? Yes, Fraulein, said the steward. There, everything was fine. The knot in Helen's chest loosened. But Peter just told me his father and mother have been dead for years. Yes, Fraulein, said the steward. How can you say that? Helen longed to grab him by the throat, shake him until he rattled. How can both those things be true? The steward ran his tongue over his stained teeth. It's not my place to contradict either Herr Lambrecht or his nephew. It was no use. She stumped up to the nursery. Mimi and Peter stood in the middle of the rug waiting for her. Peter, play with your blocks. I want to see them in alphabet order when I return. She pointed at the blocks. A, B, C. He knelt on the carpet and began stacking the blocks, obedient for the moment. She didn't trust him, though. She wedged a chair under the handle of the door, trapping them both inside. Then she stumbled downstairs to the library. It was locked, but one stubborn shove, and the lock gave way. The desk was abandoned, cubby holes dusty, drawers empty except for old pen nibs, bottles of dried ink, and a silver letter opener, shaped like two entwined sea serpents. So many letters, I can't make sense of them, Bierchen had said. Had he taken everything away to Munich? It made no sense. Why would Bieren lie to her? He knew how desperate she was. No more friends to borrow from. Nothing left to pawn. She would have followed him across the world. She had no other option. She lit a cigarette and pulled hot smoke deep into her lungs. By the time it had burned down to her knuckles, she was sure the mistake was nobody's but her own. It was typical of her, always too busy searching for the next joke to listen properly. But had said his brother was dead, but not newly dead. He said Peter's mother had died in the spring, but not this spring. She'd made assumptions, hadn't she? There was one way to find out. The crypt key. Helen held her hand out to the steward, palm up. Give it to me, please. I don't have it, Fraulein. Of course you do. You're the steward. Who else would have it? He flipped his jacket open and turned his pockets inside out. I only have this... A blue and white evil eye medallion spun at the end of his watch fob. You should have one of these, Fräulein. It keeps you safe. Helen ransacked the house for keys and limped down the cellar stairs. Her mouth began watering as soon as she smelled the salty air. She lit a cigarette. It dangled from her lips as she tried each key in turn. None fit the Cripps lock. She leaned on the door with all her weight, but the heavy iron hinges didn't even shift. She squinted through the keyhole. Only darkness. She lowered herself to the floor and threaded her fingers under the door. A feathery shift of air drifted from below, ruffling her hair. It smelled delicious, sea-salty and savoury, like a good piece of veal charred quickly over white-hot coals and sliced with a sharp knife into bleeding red pieces. Her fingers brushed against something. Forcing her hands under the door, she caught it with the tips of her fingers, drew it out. It was a tiny vertebra, no bigger than the tip of her finger. Helen held it close to the candle flame, turning it over in her palm. It was brown with dried blood. The canal piercing the bone was packed with white crystals. She picked at them with her fingernail. Salt. There was something else under the door, too. A tooth coated in a brown blush of blood. A tendril of frozen flesh hung from its root. Helen limped upstairs. The chair she'd leaned against the nursery door was wedged so tightly. The feet scratched two fresh scars into the floor as she dragged it away. Peter waited in the doorway. Mimi was curled up in the window seat. Is this yours? She showed him the tooth. No, miss. He skinned his lips back, his loose tooth hung from his gum by a thread. Where did it come from then? He blinked up at her, eyes clear and innocent. Bitter, miss, I don't know. Tall as he was in that moment, he seemed little more than an infant. His voice was quite lovely. The effect of a slight childish slur on those German vowels was adorable. Do you know where the key to the crypt is? No, miss. Have you been inside the crypt? No, miss. He was just a child. Children had no sense of time. Did he even know the difference between a month and a year? She'd gotten herself worked up over nothing. The steward and cook had taken a dislike to her, but it was her own fault. She should have taken care to make friends with them. But no matter. Bierhan would be back in a few days, and the summer would continue as planned. Helen brought Mimi and Peter their dinner, barricaded them in the nursery, then helped herself to a bottle of claret from the steward's pantry. She set it on the dining room table beside her dinner plate. No corkscrew, and she hadn't found one while searching through the house for keys. The steward must have hidden them. She hadn't seen any cigarettes either. She'd have to ration the ones in her cigarette case until Birchen came home. She called for the steward, When he didn't come, she fetched the silver letter opener from the library and used it to pry the cork from the bottle. She lifted the bottle to her mouth, like a drunk in a Montparnasse alleyway. The wine burned as it slipped down her parched throat. Helen put the letter opener in her pocket and took her plate and the wine bottle out to the terrace. The air was fresh with pine. The first evening stars winked overhead between clouds stained with dusk, A hundred feet off the terrace, the floating log bobbed. Slow ripples licked the terrace steps. She'd almost drained the wine bottle when the log was joined by another. The breeze carried a whiff of salt. The two logs seemed to be moving toward her, eel-sinuous. Starlight glistened off their backs as they slipped through the water, dipping under and then breaking the surface in unison, like a pair of long porpoises. The bottle slipped from her hand and smashed on the terrace, Shards of glass flew into the lake. The logs turned to look at her. Helen scrambled into the house and slammed the door. She ran to the parlour and began dragging an oak chest across the floor, rucking up the rug and peeling curls of varnish from the floor. She pulled it across the foyer, scraping deep scars across dark wood. By the time she'd barricaded the front door, she was dripping with sweat. Her wounded leg throbbed with every shuddering heartbeat. She crept to the parlour window, and peeked between the drapes. Only one creature was visible, floating just beyond the edge of the terrace. It looked like a log again, but she knew better. She'd seen them. Two long, inky serpents raising their head from the water, their maggot pale eyes hollow and staring. Just a log, that's all. The log flipped. Water poured across its back, its mouth split open, Starlight revealed hundreds of teeth, wire thin and hooked. Just a log, that's all. Birchen was
0: a liar. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm.
1: Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind.
2: This is the story of Harry Dalowitz, and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
1: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The cook and steward sat at the kitchen table, heads down over their dinner, one candle burning between them. I suppose you'll tell me there are no serpents in the lake. Herr Lambrecht says they're logs, and it's not your place to contradict him. She threw her arms wide. If one of those monsters bit off your leg and Herr Lambrecht said it hadn't, you'd agree with him. Would you like another bottle of wine, Fräulein? The steward asked. Always. She pounded her fist on the table, rattling their dinner plates. But I'd rather know how badly Herr Lambrecht lied to me and why. The steward shrugged and turned back to his meal. Helen ransacked the kitchen drawers and piled instruments on the table. Knives, forks, even a slender iron spit. Everything she could find that was long and slender and strong. She wrapped them in a rag, grabbed the candlestick from the table, and lugged everything downstairs. Delicious, salty air roiled out from under the door, stronger than before. Helen's stomach growled. She lit a cigarette and rolled up her sleeves. The white coating on the walls and door wasn't frost. It was salt. She scraped the crust off the eye of one of the griffins. It wadded up under her fingernail, dense and gritty. Helen licked the salt off her finger and slipped a filleting knife into the keyhole. She could feel the latch inside and bumps that must be a series of tumblers. They clicked as she guided the knife tip back and forth. The blade soared at the corners of the keyhole carving away fine curls of brass. But the knife was too wide, too clumsy. She tried the iron spit next. It left a patina of sticky grease on her palms. She attacked the lock with each instrument in turn, whining with frustration. She knocked her forehead on the door gently, once, twice. A chill played over her bare skin. Goose flesh prickled her arms, Sour spit flooded her mouth. Finally, she drew the letter opener out of her pocket and fed its tip through the lock, leaning into the door as if she could embrace its whole width. She peeked into the keyhole, hand by her cheek like an archer with a drawn bow. She licked salt from her lips. The lock clicked. The door opened an inch, hinges squeaking. A little wet bone bounced across the floor and hit her foot. She turned. Peter was right behind her. Candlelight flickered over his round cheeks and dimpled chin, the neatly combed wings of pale hair framing his face. He was just a child, orphaned, friendless. She'd already given him her sympathy. Didn't he deserve her care? Hello. She kept her voice gentle. How did she get out of the nursery? Bitter, Miss York. The door opened. The chair must have fallen. She hadn't wedged it hard enough. Peter stared at the crypt door. She should take him back upstairs, tell Mimi to put him to bed, but he would just come down here again. And wasn't this his own home? Do you know what's behind this door, Peter? ''Mama,'' he said. ''Yes, that's what your uncle told me. Not just her, but your whole family, all of your ancestors in their tombs.'' ''Do you know what a tomb is?'' He shook his head. ''A big box made of stone, usually. Or an alcove in a stone wall, sometimes. Usually family crypts are in cemeteries or churches, but your family...'' She hesitated. ''Your family is strange,'' she thought. She needed to find out exactly how strange. Are you sure you want to see your mother's tomb? Peter nodded. The air that rushed out as she opened the door had a meaty, metallic tang. Her stomach roiled with hunger. Her vision swam. She shielded the candle flame with her body. Peter took her hand and led her into the crypt. Helen had seen crypts before. They didn't frighten her. At age five, she'd seen her mother shut away in a Highgate Cemetery tomb. She'd kissed her first girl in the crypt at St. Bride's, after stealing the key from the deacon, and she'd attended parties in the Paris catacombs, drank champagne, watched by thousands of gaping skulls. But this was no crypt. The passage opened into a wide cavern, its walls caked with salt crystals and honeycombed with human-sized alcoves, rough indentations hacked out of the rock with some primitive tool. Some were deep, as if they might be passages. Some gaped shallow and empty, and others were scabbed over with a crusted mess the colour of dried blood, leaking filth down the crystalline walls. One of these was just over her left shoulder. Tiny bones were embedded in the bloody grime. It smelled like fresh meat. A few... Just a few here and there were furred over with cobwebs, the same bloodless pale pink as Peter's skin. At the bottom of the cavern, a wide pool of oily water quivered and sloshed. Mama, Peter said, Papa. I don't think they're here, Peter, she whispered, pulling him back toward the door. His hand slipped from her grasp. He ran to a cobwebbed alcove and plunged his hand deep inside, She grabbed his jacket and pulled him away. The strands clung to his arm, stretched and snapped. When his hand appeared, he held tight to a squirming grub the size of his head. His fingers pierced its flesh. The wounds dripped clear fluid. Its eyes were dark spots behind a veil of skin. Its tiny, toothless maw opened and closed in agony. "'Brother,' Peter said. He raised the grub to his lips.' and opened his mouth. Helen swatted it out of his hand. The grub rolled across the floor of the cavern and plopped into the pool. She ran, dragging Peter behind her by his elbow. Helen slammed the door and braced it with her shoulder, throwing her weight against it as she jabbed the lock with the letter opener. Getting the door open had been sheer luck. She'd never get it locked again, not if she worried at it for a hundred years. She couldn't believe her stupidity, opening doors that should stay shut, going places she didn't belong. Trusting Birchen, as if she actually knew him, as if he were human. Stupid, 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 she said under her breath. The lock clicked. She fell to her hands and knees, weak with relief. Pain shot up her leg. Her vision darkened. Peter lifted the candle. Yes, Miss York? She sucked air through her teeth and wrenched herself around to sit with her back against the door. She would get away from Peter, run as fast and as far as possible, into the mountains, into the forest, anywhere but here. But she didn't think she could stand. Not yet. Do you remember your mother? Your father? Do you know what they are? Monsters with hollow, staring eyes. Her voice rose to a shriek. Do you know what you are? "'No, Miss York. I know you.' He sat at her feet and slipped his hand into hers. His fingers were sticky with fluid from the grub. It stank like rot, like old meat turned green and festering with maggots. Her gorge rose once. Twice. She took two convulsive gasps for air, and then the stench changed. Her stomach growled. She raised Peter's fingers to her mouth "'and licked them clean one after another. "'Then she sucked the last of the juice from his sleeve. "'There was more on the other side of the door, "'puddled on the stone floor. "'She could open the door again. "'But Peter looked so tired. "'His eyelids were puffy "'and the skin under each eye was stained dark with exhaustion. "'Come here,' she said, "'and the boy climbed right into her open arms.' Helen watched Mimi undress Peter and tuck him into bed. When the nursemaid tried to leave the bedroom, Helen stopped her. No, we're staying here. Peter can't be alone. We have to take care of him. Mimi hung her head. Do you understand? We? I don't think you do. You let Peter go every time. You don't even try to stop him. Why don't you care for him? He's just a child. The boy watched them, hands folded between cheek and pillow. Mimi stared at the floor. A tear streaked down her cheek. We have to keep Peter safe, you and I, so he can grow up healthy and strong like his uncle. And then like his parents out in the lake. Helen sighed. I wish we could talk properly, you and I. We. Wait here. Helen ran to fetch a pencil and paper. When she returned, Peter was asleep tell me why you let him go. Mimi fumbled with the pencil. She couldn't even hold it properly, and the only mark she could make on the paper was a toppling cross inside a crude shape like a gravestone. Mimi's lower lip quivered. A tear dropped onto the paper. Helen took the pencil from Mimi's shaking fingers. It doesn't matter, she said. Mimi climbed onto the bed and lay beside Peter. Helen pulled a heavy chair in from the hallway and slid it in front of the door. It might not keep him from getting out, but if he tried to drag it away, the noise would wake her. Then she kicked off her shoes and climbed onto the bed, reaching around Mimi to rest her palm on Peter's arm. The girl was crying. Her back quivered against Helen's chest. It's all right, Helen whispered, holding her close. is going to be all right. Mimi cried harder. Helen expected to be awake all night, but Peter was safe, the room was warm, the bed cosy, and Mimi's sobs were rhythmic and soothing. Helen slipped into sleep and tumbled through slippery dreams of inky shapes that writhed and grasped and tore at her skin. When she woke, the moon shone through the window, throwing the crossed shadows of the window panes over the rug. Her legs throbbed. The clock struck four and Peter and Mimi were both gone. On the pillow lay two bright pieces of copper wire, six inches long, worried and kinked, their ends jagged. The pillow was spotted with blood. Helen ran down to the kitchen and fumbled with a candle, nearly setting her sleeve on fire as she lit it on the oven's banked coals. She plunged downstairs, bare feet on the freezing steps, and when the smell hit her, she stumbled, She slipped on a bone and nearly sent herself toppling headfirst. She panted, leaning on the wall. The smell pierced her. It coiled and drifted and wove through her, conjuring the last drip of whiskey in her father's crystal decanter, the first strawberries of summer, the last scrap of Christmas pudding smeared over gold-chased bone china and licked off with lazy tongue swipes. It smelled like a sticky wetness on her fingers, coaxed out of a pretty girl in the cloakroom at a Mayfair ball, slipped into a pair of silk gloves and placed on a young colonel's scarlet shoulder during the waltz. The smell was so intense, so bright it lit the stairwell. The air brimmed with scents so vast and uncontainable they poured from one sense to the next, banishing every shadow and filling the world with music. Helen fell from one step to the next, knees weak, each footstep jarring her hips and spine. Her vision spun. The cellar brimmed with halos and rainbows, a million suns concentrated and focused through a galaxy of lenses, dancing and skipping and brimming with life. The only point of darkness in the whole cellar was Mimi. The nursemaid crouched in front of the crypt door, She humped and hunched, ramming her face into the wood as if trying to chew through it. The threshold puddled with blood. Mimi's jaw hung loose. It swung against her throat with every thrust. Her nose was pulped, upper lip shredded. The skin of her cheeks sloughed away. The remains of her teeth were scattered at her feet. Helen grabbed her foot with both hands and heaved, dragging her away. Mimi clawed at the floor, clinging to the edges of the stones with her shredded fingernails. Miss York, at the sound of Peter's voice, the air cottoned with rainbows. Peter stood at the head of the stairs, lit by a euphoria of lights. It cast patterns across his face and framed his head in a halo of sparks. Mimi threw her head back and screamed, her tongue a bleeding, live thing, trying to escape from a gaping throat, a cavitied moor that was once the face of a girl. Mimi lunged up the stairwell. Helen chased her. Peter, run! Helen howled. Mimi threw her arms around the boy. The huff of breath through her open throat spattered the walls with blood. She lunged down the hall, dangling Peter like a rag doll. Helen pitched after her, grabbing at the nursemaid's hair, skirt, sleeves. In the foyer, she caught hold of Peter's leg and yanked the boy away. Mimi dug her fingernails into the heavy chest and pulled. It scraped over the floor, throwing splinters across the foyer. She yanked the door open and turned. Blood puddled at her feet. Her tongue wagged from deep in her throat. She raised her arms, as if yearning for Peter to enter her embrace. Helen clutched Peter to her chest. She forced his head against her neck so he couldn't see his nursemaid's pulped face. Mimi yowled. Then she plunged out the door and clattered across the terrace. At the edge of the water, she teetered for a moment, arms wheeling. In the moment before she fell, an inky shape welled up from the water. Its jaws welcomed her with barely a splash. The boy knelt on the nursery window seat beside Helen, his nose pressed to the window pane. Two sinuous forms floated in the lake, lit by the pale rays of dawn, "'poaching over the mountaintops. "'Come sit over here,' Helen patted the stool in front of her. "'When the sun broke over the peaks, Peter's mother and father were gone, "'sleeping the day away at the bottom of the lake, perhaps, "'or in the crypt pool, "'keeping watch over their precious, delicious children. "'Helen kept Peter by her day and night. "'She barely took her eyes off him, never left his side.' To him she devoted all her care and attention, until her lashes scraped over dry and pitted eyeballs, her tongue swelled with thirst, and her ears pounded with the call from below. The scent slipped into her like welcome promises. Lights spun at the edge of her vision, calling, guiding her down to the cavern. At night, the serpents tossed back and forth in the waves, dancing to the rhythm shuddering through the house. She didn't have to look out the window to see them. Every time she blinked, they were behind her eyelids, beckoning. Helen made it three days before she broke. When her pen turned clumsy, when her handwriting dissolved into crude scratches, she was past caring. The crypt was all she could think of. Hunger gushed through her, Overflowing and carrying her down each flight of stairs, as if floating on a warm river to the source of everything left in the world worth wanting. Her hands were too clumsy to open the door, but it didn't matter. She could eat her way through it. The scent itself was nourishment enough. Every bite was a blessing. She drowned herself in it, gave herself over until her mind hung by a thread. Her world collapsed into pain when Peter pulled her out of the cellar. She resisted a little, but she couldn't fight him. Not if it might hurt him. When he got the wires through what was left of her teeth and jaw and twisted them tight, the light abandoned her. The call receded. The house darkened. Will you be all right now, Miss York? Peter asked. We, she said.
2: What is it about gothic horror that it still resonates well into the 21st century? Is it the ominous and ancient settings? The creepy atmosphere? The impeccable manners of the slightly off characters? All of the above? I suppose it doesn't really matter. Once we get a taste of the macabre, we just end up craving more. If you're in the mood for more horror, may I suggest you check out Spider King, in which a wrongly incarcerated black man makes a very dangerous bargain to earn his freedom. Or maybe try Roanoke Falls. Something is punishing the people of a small Virginia colony with blood. Sinners, beware. Both shows are out now and available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, whatever dimension you're in, safe travels.
0: You're listening to Tales Beyond Time. Created and produced by Realm. Your portal to another world. Listen away. Tales Beyond Time, episode 33, features A Human Stain, written by Kelly Robson. It is produced by Mary Asadolahi and Marco Palmieri, associate produced by Alexis Latshaw, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and performed by Shiromi Arsario. Audio produced by Spoken Realms. Additional editing by Nicholas Papaleo. Cover art by Kindle
2: Thomas.